Himalayas Studios. Katrina has always been on my mind. I am from eastern North Carolina. A hurricane and flood destroyed my hometown of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina in 1999 and you know, put the whole thing underwater. In 1999, Hurricane Floyd made landfall in the United States on the coast of North Carolina. The storm caused widespread flooding for weeks, killing 51 people and causing billions in damages. And a 10-year-old Van Newkirk II witnessed it all. And so when Katrina hit six years after that, and seeing you know some of the same things I had seen even years after Hurricane Floyd, the fact that people on the black side of town still had to draw uh, contaminated well water years and years after the flood that that hit Rocky Mount, seeing people exposed to biohazards, to contaminants in the water, seeing how the response seemed to be racially disparate, we'll put it. Um, (laughs) Those were things that had been on my mind for years. And it seemed like there were motifs in what happened in Katrina that could explain almost everything that put me at unease. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, Van Newkirk II and the unending legacy of Hurricane Katrina. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Van Newkirk II has been reporting on environmental justice and public health for years, before releasing floodlines with The Atlantic earlier this year, which focuses on Hurricane Katrina. He was covering the aftermath of Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico and its people. He's well-versed in what can go wrong before, during, and after disaster strikes. But even he was surprised by the response to the pandemic. So the fact that America fumbled the response and that all these elements of you know disinformation and politicization of what's going on, those things are not surprising. Hmm. The depth of our failure is somehow <laughs> surprising. Um, <laughs> even for me as somebody who, who considers himself rather pessimistic, the really mundane ways that people completely botched this thing 
they did surprise me. Hmm. I'm a public health guy. That's my training. I'm a, I have a master's of science in public health. Hmm. And and you worked for a Kaiser at one point. Yeah. Right? So th- this is my jam. You know, people, people. <laughs> you know, there's a generally high uptake of public health measures in the U.S. Smoking rates have gone down. Drunk driving rates have gone down. People generally get vaccinated, despite all the stuff that happens on the fringes, like the anti-vaxxer movement. Generally, people are have been in good shape. And that's kind of been America's calling card in the world is we've done really well at getting rid of some of the ways that people most commonly die. And Hmm. we have just not we've not done any of those things in this pandemic. Hmm. Any of the things that we like to say we're good at responding to emerging threats, we haven't done it. I think one thing we should take away from Katrina is the fact that we do a really good job at taking care of people who we care about Hmm. and everybody else kind of the powers that be assess their worthiness. And if they are deemed unworthy, they get nothing. The extent to which people in power have been left vulnerable by some aspects of the pandemic is surprising to me. And the extent to which even they kind of espouse that, you know, if I die, I die philosophy about it all. I didn't expect that. But everything else kind of has played along the basic lines of what we saw with Katrina. We saw early on people of color died the fastest, died the most and had the highest burden of disease. If you follow the reasons why people actually suffer in any disaster, including floods, including Uh, epidemics and pandemics it wouldn't be surprising to you at all that Mm. black latinx people had the most burden in this pandemic because a lot of what we consider to be sort of new in a disaster isn't really Mm. you know people can't get to the hospital they have to go to work they cannot sit at home essential workers low-wage workers are constantly in the line of biological hazard anyways Mm. those things played out Absolutely predictably. So it's been 15 years since Hurricane Katrina. Um, Why make this show now? And why uh, as a podcast? To me, you know, it had been going on two years after Hurricane Maria. I had finally been able to kind of sit back and get a little more perspective about why what happened in Maria kind of stuck with me so much as a journalist. Hmm. And... I kept going back to Katrina. There were lessons there. There were stories there that I believed were key to understanding why America kept replaying the same script over and over again in these kinds of disasters. And the stars just kind of aligned for me. The other consideration was, if you've ever heard people in New Orleans talk, it's a storytelling town. Hmm. It's a place where I feel most stories are going to be aided by audio. And one where probably you can't do them justice without audio. So what were the key questions you had walking into New Orleans? Obviously, I had questions about what actually happened, about the order of events, about how uh, we even came to understand uh, the story of the levees breaking and why it seemed that... There were so many half-truths about both the situation on the ground in the immediate aftermath and Mm. the reason why the city flooded. 
But also, I wanted to take that question and just give it to people who I was interviewing. What questions do you believe have not been answered in reporting and documentaries about Katrina? And tried to structure our interviews around some of those unanswered questions that people themselves who were in New Orleans, who were in the Gulf Mm. Coast, had. Almost like a collaboration. Oh, yeah. And I think you can see it in the show. Yeah. A lot of my favorite moments in the show are are ones where, you know, nobody really has the answer when we're figuring out together and where I am just as in the dark as, as some of the people I'm interviewing or where information from another interview may be germane to me talking to a person right there. And so I I tried to make things as collaborative, as back and forth, and create a storytelling structure that was as flexible as possible to incorporate new information, new questions, and new modes of storytelling as we went on. The original version of the story was much more, um, I think, weighted towards the factual, Hmm. understanding what happened, laying out the fact that this wasn't a natural disaster and, uh, you know, it was really heavily focused on the two weeks after the levees broke. Hmm. But as we were interviewing people, we kept coming up to the realization that Katrina just wasn't over Hmm. for lots of people. That the thing we call Katrina a, you know, a flood, you know, it's not even really the hurricane is it's, it's the day the levees broke yeah the thing people use as sh- katrina as shorthand for is a day a couple days that they watched on the news but for the people we talked to katrina was this these set of odyssean journeys that had were not over yet hmm. and so we had to change the shape of the show to accommodate that it feels like that is like the key to a lot of sort of big events that have happened in American history in general, right? Like nothing ever ends. Nothing ever ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's something we're, I'm glad that reporting on the pandemic has, has gotten a little better at doing is like, there's not going to be a neat end to this thing. Yeah. This is a going to be a generation defining event. And that's how we should rethink all disasters. Hmm. They're not points in time. They are expressions often of underlying issues. And those issues don't go away when the storm clouds go away, you know? After the break, how Van and his team meet the best sounding podcast of the year. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lemur Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. There are a lot of reasons I wanted to talk to Van about Flatlines. But one of the main reasons is the scoring throughout the series, which includes award-winning trumpeter Christian Scott. It is genuinely one of the best-sounding podcasts I have ever heard. Okay, so first of all, you know, all credit to our maestro extraordinaire David Herman. I definitely had some input. Producers definitely had input in how the final mix and music went. But um, a lot of this felt like divine inspiration from David. So we went about this, you know, kind of like, I guess, the the traditional way people score podcasts. We had a a sound bed that we had together of of things that inspired us from New Orleans. Hmm. We were coming up with sort of our range of options for putting together a library. And then he comes up with this idea, you know, like, what about if we go with Christian Scott? And, you know, I'm like, I, 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 okay, I like Christian. I love Christian. Is he going to agree to work with us? And he agreed. And Christian Scott's folks really gave us a good selection of sounds to choose from. I think armed with that and our original idea of, of the soundscape of the thing, you know, we really mm-hmm. wanted to balance the general, like, brooding the foreboding of waiting for a storm to come with pieces of music that would, you know, accentuate the lighter moments. That was really important to me. One of those brooding pieces is called Composition Number 19 for 100 Tubas by Anthony Braxton. There's the 100 uh, Tubas, which shows up in episode one when Fred is talking about the storm coming. So we end up, we're on some 10th, 12th floor, whatever the case is. They're having a hurricane party. I mean, they're drinking their asses off. I'm like, no, no, give me Odoo's. The rain picked up late Sunday and never stopped. And in those high-rise buildings in downtown New Orleans, the wind started getting dangerous. The wind started hitting and it started howling a little bit. That giant window behind Garland started rattling. It sounded like... It exploded. And uh, engineers came in, caught me out real quick, took me down a hallway. The station on each side was just destroyed glass everywhere, furniture all, and they took me down to a closet. (laughs) I broadcast all night from the closet. So that to me is like the moment. When I heard it, I was like, oh my God, we got a show. 
So, Flatlines has a ton of moments that stuck with me, uh, but I'm curious. What were some of your favorite stories or pieces of tape that were left on the cutting room floor? Oh, there's a lot of them. Um, <laughs> let me think. Well, okay, so we used a very small sliver of the tape we got with General Honorary. Mm. It takes a little time to do difficult shit. It takes a little longer to do fucking impossible. But we're going to do this shit. I mean, we did D-Day. We did Iwo Jima. This is the fucking army. We know how to do tough shit. But you got to get the logistics set to get it done. You with me? That's General Russell Honore, the commander of the task force that coordinated some of the military relief efforts. Let's see. There was one moment... It just ended up not being clear on tape, but we did actually tape him smoking four cigars during our conversation. <laughs> actually, I think the hardest thing to cut was we went to the uh, Lower Ninth Ward hmm. and talked to a bunch of folks about what had happened, the trajectory of the neighborhood, and about the history of the neighborhood. Yeah. And we weren't able to include those interviews in the final. You know, we went to places like the House of Dance and Feathers. We went to the Lower Ninth Ward Living Museum. We went to all these different museums, yeah. all these different places where people have done their best to preserve the history of New Orleans. I hope that the spirit of those places has made it through in the final product, hmm. but the tape didn't. So it makes a ton of sense that that would be a really hard cut to make uh, because it really shows this whole city, you know, lost its way of life for a while. And it's arguable if they'll ever get it back. Uh, in the last episode, you talk about the word recovery. Uh, and I find that we don't really ever talk about the culture that's being lost when the, these disasters happen. Right. So poet, intellectual, educator, activist, all around just, you know, guy in New Orleans, Kalamu Yassalam, hmm. you know, he talks about what recovery actually would have meant. And it would be everybody having a chance to live better than they lived before the flood. Hmm. And that conceptualization really stuck with me as a way to think about not just recovering after Katrina, but a way to think about all disasters, right? And right. when you ask that question you really get to think about like what would actually have to go into it for that to happen. It wouldn't be enough to just move people back into where they were, they were, just fix their houses. You would have to deal with the underlying issues that made them vulnerable to that flood in the first place. That made them so they had to spend weeks and months, you know, across the country as evacuees being called refugees. You'd have to deal with all those structures. And of course, that has not happened. So one of the last episodes of the show was this conversation with Michael Brown, the former FEMA chief who led the recovery and disaster management efforts. In your mind, what was the worst thing? The levees would break. My press secretary was instructed, you find every freaking outlet that I can talk to so that I can tell them that I think this is going to be really bad and that you need to get the hell out of Dodge. You told them the levees are going to breach? No, I didn't. No, no I talked. I, there's a fine line between I'm never going to say to somebody, 
I think the levees are going to breach. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to panic people. Would panic not have been a little bit? A little bit of panic been useful in this case? In in hindsight, yeah, in hindsight, you know. Now, now you're asking me to look backward. Well, that's and, the whole show. <laughs> but looking backward, I might have, I might have said, I fear the levees could break. So this really felt like the climax of the whole series. Um, so I'm curious, what were you looking to get out of that interview? Hmm. I was trying to understand the the very basic question of, okay, we have a federal government that in all of our mythology about said federal government can do whatever it chooses to do. This is the government that sponsored the Manhattan Project, the space race, that's done so many things in the American legend that were considered impossible, impractical, and, you know, to paraphrase JFK, they did them because they were hard, right? Yeah. And so why was that just not on the table when it came to helping people, to saving people during and after Hurricane Katrina? Now, I don't know if we got an answer that's going to satisfy everybody from that interview, but I do feel like talking to Michael Brown helped put some things into place for me. And also, you know, again, I, I was taking pieces of this the whole time and asking uh, people I interviewed questions that they want to hear answered. And I do think, you know, you listen to the, that episode, it meant something to Leanne, too. I feel like it's crazy. Like, I'm like, it don't, I don't care about no apology. But y'all too, see y'all, I'm going to get y'all. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Leanne, you know, I'm sorry, Leanne, I'm sorry. Like, he right here telling me I'm sorry. I'm going to get y'all too. <laughs> like, the part that he, when he was saying my name and talking to me, made me feel like I matter. Yeah. I mean, she just got, she got like an an acknowledgement, not necessarily an apology, but an acknowledgement. Right. Not right. an apology. <laughs> um, was, so, so I guess, you know, there was an apology. It was qualified. But and she reacts strongly to being acknowledged, to having that qualified apology. Just hearing somebody who was making these high-level decisions, who is the face of what went wrong, still yeah. to lots of people in New Orleans, saying her name and, and acknowledging what she went through, that meant something. Yeah. What does proper acknowledgement look like? What does proper apology look like um, in any of these regards? That's something I think I'm still figuring out. I don't know that we have a lot of good templates hmm. for full-throated apologies from government. Yeah, I mean, there's there's <laughs> the discourse about reparations, right, with, with respect to slavery, right. yeah. But I think, you know, that conversation about reparations is instructive yeah. because it makes clear that there has to be some attempt at redress, that there are two pieces to this that seem to be non-negotiable, and that's an actual acknowledgement of what happened, of, you know, taking responsibility for actions 
that led to that and a, and an acknowledgement of how it made a person a group of people a community feel how it materially affected them yeah and then once you have those things in place then that leads you to a place where you can begin the process of redress hmm. right so if you acknowledge that you your actions caused a community to lose x billion million or a trillion dollars of wealth or if it's something as simple as you acknowledge that your ineptitude or neglect caused somebody to lose a family member hmm. then you can begin to sort of figure out how do i make good how do i make amends on that hurt yeah how much hope as an individual do you have of ever seeing that we're having conversations today that the mainstream wasn't having 10 years ago in terms of how to ameliorate harm, in terms of why we even talk about reparations. And I don't know, maybe some of that sensibility is leaking into how we do politics hmm. and how we structure policy. So I'm not quite hopeful, but I'm not quite pessimistic either. Hmm. I believe in people. I believe that human experience, human history has always taught that if people exist, there are always going to be people who are moving for right and good, for liberation, for the things that I consider are the marks of pious or moral living in the world. Hmm. There has never been a moment, even you think about the, the days in the deepest, darkest, middle of chattel slavery in America, people who were enslaved threw off the yoke, rebelled violently sometimes. Sometimes they shirked their work. You know, sometimes they did smaller acts of resistance. They did that every day in a time where it was not clear that their children and their children's children would not live the same way they did. Even then, they still, you know, rebelled and organized and rose up so that to me is i can never rule out movement on that level hmm. on the other hand i also know people <laughs> and i know that power doesn't stop moving to make itself more powerful hmm. and that it's very difficult to get rid of entrenched power and I also understand that power and money are perhaps the most concentrated that they've ever been in human history right now. Mm. So I have to sit with those two assessments of human nature and figure out what goes between them. So what's next for you? Most of my attention is in the obvious places, politics and the pandemic. I'm boring like that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also um, dedicating a lot of neurons to thinking about what I believe to be is like a follow-up project to floodlines and to the work that I've enjoyed the most, which is thinking about disasters as ultimate expressions of enduring human inequality. Hmm. And so I'm thinking about that a lot with this moment in climate change. It feels like all these different little things are popping up across the world that are making us feel like it's post-apocalyptic or whatever. But to me, they're all part of a whole. So I read somewhere that you're interested in science fiction. Uh, is that also in your future? I would love to. 
and I have written some things of various quality. <laughs> and uh, that's all I'll say about that. What's uh, what's your favorite <laughs> science fiction like media? If it's got a spaceship in it, or <laughs> it's a fifty fifty chance that I'll read it. But I'm really into right now. Uh, I'm going back and reading, rereading N.K. Jemisin's books. The uh, fifth season, I've read it so many times, but it feels so, it feels almost like an oracle to me hmm. in understanding a lot of the questions that I have about inequality and climate change. Yeah. It's a good place to start if you're into it. So what is it about science fiction that speaks to you? To me, the ultimate lesson of science fiction is that no matter our level of technology, the basic questions of who we are and who we want to be are going to be the same. And so most good science fiction, you know, we, whether we consider it dystopian or utopian or somewhere in between, is trying to apply the same socioeconomic, sociological questions we have today and figure them out in a world that's way more advanced than ours technologically, right? The question of AI is one we th- that you know seems like it's a Terminator problem or a Matrix problem, but it's a Facebook problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then today, it, AI itself is a question about existing human bias. Hmm. You know, and Waterworld's a, a movie about inequality. So yeah. <laughs> um, that's what I like about science fiction is it's a, it's a way to get people to think about these, these issues that are really so political today and trick them into believing they're not political. I look forward to reading your science fiction book one day, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Aswahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Perotti at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.